I'm reminded that uh, the Mount Sinai thundered, you know, before Moses heard God speak. <laughs> that kind of is trembling, causes you to tremble, isn't it? Uh, <clears throat> because God has spoken. And it means that those who would dare to say, thus saith the Lord, need to have prayerfully and carefully engaged with his word. So I'd like for us to read his word and then pray together before we go further in our consideration of it this morning. Our text is taken as we go through this series of four on the book of Titus, the, Paul's letter to Titus, uh, beginning at the first chapter, the fifth verse, and continuing through the end of the chapter in verse 16. It's a lengthy section. Paul writes to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Thus far in God's Word, rather stern, let's look to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, each of us in our hearts would bow before you. And we know that these words are not simply meant for others, they're meant for us. Not simply for a church on Crete long ago, but for Christ's community. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might ready our minds to hear, to understand, 
and move our wills to want to obey you out of love for Christ and for what he's done for us, that we might be more like him and let nothing in our lives or our relationships intrude upon that, that we may walk with you and the community around may take note that we have been with Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Ideas have consequences. One of the books on my shelf has, uh, is entitled, by Gert Hofstede, is entitled Culture's Consequences. <laughs> and there are a number on that subject. But it's true, you know, those who grow up in a racist setting may grow up feeling inferior or, contrary-wise, superior to all those who are not like them. There's an innate ethnocentrism in the fallen human nature. And the environment of our culture can mold us. And anything goes morality or a, a pragmatism in ethics will bear fruit and it won't be a good fruit. Uh, the Wiccan motto is, if you will, their creed, and you do no harm, do as you will. Well, that sounds very libertarian, doesn't it? But the problem is that it's not biblical. When you say as you, and especially as it's being interpreted, if you do no harm, no harm to whom? You see, if you have a worldview that is centered upon humanity, man-centered, that everything revolves about us, in fact, everything revolves about me, then that worldview will lead you to say, well, it does no harm to me. It does no harm to these that are important to me. And we'll stop there. But the Bible indicates we need to understand that there is such a thing as an injury to the honor of Almighty God and His holiness. That our sin is an affront to Him. And you do no harm. No harm to whom? Our worldview, our ideas have consequences. And it's also true in the church. And our text today addresses squarely both the contamination of false teachers and the corrective of true teachers in the body of Christ. But it's not just for elders that these words are significant. It's for all of us. Because the requirements of an elder, other than being given the responsibility to oversee the flock and to teach the Word of God and refute those who are uh, controverting the gospel, apart from those specific requirements of that office, everything else here is a characteristic of a holy life, a Christ-like life, to which all of us have been called. See, ministry leadership, Paul tells us, begins with our family. Now, I understand that some people are called to a life of celibate service. Paul was one. He's writing this. He's saying, an elder must be a husband of one wife. What about you, Paul? He's saying, if you're married, <laughs> you better not be a bigamist. You better be faithful to that marriage. We might say a one-woman man. But it's also true, by the way, the other side of it, that wives are to be faithful in their covenant relationship too. And by the way, I must say this, that marriage is instituted by God before the fall. Chapter 1 and 2 
of Genesis. Jesus quotes those verses when he talks about the dissolution of it. Marriage is described as a covenant by God in Malachi, among other places, in, through the words of the prophet Malachi. There is a covenantal relationship that is enduring down through time in the history of God's purposes for humanity in exercising the dominion mandate. That covenant, you see, continues. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, about false teachers about which uh, Titus writes. In verse 11, teaching things, Paul says, that they ought not to teach. You see, the local church may come under attack by unscrupulous teachers. And <clears throat> I would not just say may, I would say at some time or another probably will. Okay? You have a knock at your door, <laughs> and two young men in white shirts and black pants and ties and a little badge will say, uh, we're elders, we're here on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ, and that's probably all they'll say uh, in introduction. May we come in. Or you'll have others knocking at the door, and they will say, talk to you about, oh, um, isn't it awful how things are? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be interested in the wonderful way things are going to be? You see, and, and they'll have materials by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in their hand. But it's not just those. It's not just those. Uh, I, I go to the Evangelical Theological Society and there's a, a basic uh, profession of faith that everyone has to sign, a creedal statement that they believe in the Bible as uh, God's authoritative word and that they believe that God is a triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and, um, and you'd think that would settle at least those two issues and it doesn't doesn't we have those who are in the Evangelical Theological Society who would say well yeah but authority got to understand what we mean by that inerrancy I don't know about that uh, infallibility only if we define it this way and they quibble they quibble no longer do you have the saith the Lord. It can happen. It can happen in this, God forbid, in this pulpit, Christ community. And Paul says, be careful. Notice, first of all, he says, deceptive and unbelieving people can turn whole households away from the gospel, verse 11. They're ruining, he says, whole households. Isn't that interesting? They don't just come on the Lord's Day and try to stir up or speak or gather a following there, they begin by house by house. House by house. And that's why the solution is house by house. House by house. There's a lot of disinformation campaigns right now going on by Russia and the Crimea. Um, there's a lot on the web, if you've noticed it, about about a middle-aged babushka that is a, a lady of Russian um, uh, language and descent who, who claims to be part of a Russian-speaking um, minority that's a majority in eastern Ukraine and in the Crimea and who is caught speaking out for all the Russian-speaking people of that land. And then she does the same in another state of, uh, 
a province of Ukraine and does the same in another. In each of them, she's done her hair differently. She's dressed differently. She's posing as a different person, introduces herself with a different name. It's the same person. She's a plant. She's a propagandist. It's disinformation. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> uh, that is happening in Syria. It's happening in, in uh, uh, Iran. All for the purpose of molding world opinion to support despotic and abusive regimes. But American politics are, if we're honest, often no better. I thought in Vietnam, I believed the uh, Tonkin Gulf crisis and resolution. C. Turner Joy and the Maddox attacked by, by uh, torpedo boats out of uh, North Vietnam. You know, it was all contrived. We didn't know it at the time. We went to war. We bombed Haiphong Harbor. We, I lost some friends in that. Our government is not infallible. So we need to understand that sin knows no political boundaries. And it knows no ecclesiastical boundaries either. See, Christ's church must be different. For Christ is the truth. He says, I'm the way, even the truth, and the life. God, we're told by Paul through Titus here, or in his letter to Titus, God cannot lie. If God is like that, El Chesed, a God of covenant faithfulness, who never, his love never fails never gives up, never runs out on us. If that's true, then the church must be careful to whom it hearkens. What's the litmus test Paul sets here? Well, you had to be able to pass a, a thorough examination on a Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, I love our confession, but that's not what Paul says. Not what Paul says. It's the gospel. What's the gospel? We better be clear on it, Christ community. So that we can teach our families. So that when those come who would turn us from it. We can withstand it. We can refute it. We can at the very least hold fast ourselves. The gospel is what we've been hearing about. Through song and through prayer this morning. The gospel is what the scripture teaches. The gospel tells us that this triune God. Before, before he created anything. That the Father committed to the Son made a promise. A promise to whom? A promise to His Son to give Him a betrothed people who would be elect in Him. Ephesians chapter 1. A church, a bride, that He would come and redeem by going to the cross and offering a sinless life that alone could atone for the sins of his people. And that God could be just and not just say, it doesn't matter. We'll let that one go. He's pure. He's absolutely holy. And he can be just and yet the justifier of those who come to him through Jesus Christ. That Jesus willingly at the hands of wicked men died upon the cross, allowing God to visit and, and completely assuage the justice of his holy justice, his judgment upon his people. And having done that, 
He burst the bonds of death. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. Why is that important? Oh, it's just a mythological symbol. No, it happened in space, in time, in history. Physically, his body was raised. He ascended into heaven after having given commandments to his disciples. And he's enthroned. He pours out his spirit whom <coughs> the risen Christ has received for us on our behalf. Acts chapter 2 tells us. Peter in his great sermon at Pentecost. And then pours it out. Pours it out, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, on his church, severally as he wills. That is to say, each of us, we don't have part of the Holy Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit, but we each have different gifts. And we have the abiding presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts. Never to leave us. Never to leave us. That our works are a fruit of our relationship. A love relationship with God that comes out of a changed heart. That repents of sin. That means turns our back on it. And comes to God with open arms. And we come as children. And children don't become mature adults overnight. Brothers and sisters. Neither do I and neither do you. And that's why he doesn't say an elder must be perfect. He says, an elder must be blameless. God did not call Abram and say, walk before me and be perfect. He didn't say that. He said, walk before me and be blameless. What's the difference? Well, perfection is what Jesus is. Absolute sinlessness. None of us are that in this life. What's blameless? Blameless is keeping short accounts with God. Blameless is being responsive when we do fail. That the Spirit of God, when He convicts us, we are responsive. Decisively and quickly so. We don't drag it out and say, well, I don't know. But... No, no, no. We come brokenhearted. And we seek God's forgiveness and receive it. If we confess our sins, John says. He is faithful and just. It will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's the gospel. We have to be clear on it. Anything else is false. If we have to do things in order to earn it, it's false. But by the same token, if we say, oh, it doesn't matter how we live, we're saved by grace. Let's sin the more so that grace may abound. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, God forbid. How can those who are saved live any longer like they weren't? Rebellious leaders may then seek to subvert the gospel for their own financial advantage. Verse 10, they're called rebellious by Paul. Rebellious against what? Against what God has said in his word. Those who reject the truth. Verse 14. God has spoken it and they say, no, don't believe that. I have something better. I have something new. I have a deeper insight. I can talk with God directly. I don't need the word. Verse 11. They do it, many of them, for dishonest gain. And we've seen uh, tele televangelists who have uh, been accompanied by scandals. Scandalous living, but also scandalous uh, handling of finances for their own benefit. 
It happens today. Verse 12, where he refers to uh, one of their own prophets. He means one of those from Crete. It's a quotation from Epimedes, about, about uh, four or five centuries before Paul. The interesting thing is that those who would say, well, now that doesn't that mean that Epimedes is being recognized as a true prophet? No, he says he's one of their own prophets. Even their own prophets get some things right. <laughs> Elsewhere, Paul will quote on the Acropolis of Mars Hill at the Areopagus in Athens. He'll quote from another a pagan author or poet. Um, and what he's doing, he's not saying all these people are, are, uh, are accredited by God as prophets. Not, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that even they, in God's common grace, once in a while, get it right. See, it's Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, they, although they knew God, they know God, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul has just said, for the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Human beings, even fallen sinful human beings who aren't saved, still have some, this side of judgment day, some vestiges of the image of God that, are, that still get some things right. And this was one. Uh, by the way, this is not simply um, stereotyping. This is because of the worldview on Crete. Crete is Kaftor in the Old Testament Hebrew. From Kaftor come the Philistines. It's an invasion to the promised land. I can take that one if we had more time, but we don't. It's, uh, it's interesting how people as different as, as Cicero in in just before Paul's day, uh, a Roman uh, orator and historian and politician knows about the Cretans, and he makes similar remarks. I could refer to several others, but uh, 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 Plutarch and others who make similar comments. To be a Cretan was, in those days, to be called a Cretan meant to be someone who lives lasciviously, someone who is not to be trusted, especially in business dealings. And that was how they were known. That's how they were known. So what was Paul doing there? Well, they were needing the gospel. What better place for Paul to be? But he taught a gospel that didn't just save their soul someday, by and by, and leave them in the cesspool of their lifestyle. It reached down and in grace transformed them. Well, what were they teaching? Verse 14 says Jewish myths. Verse 15, he goes on to say, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. What's he talking about there? Well, on the one hand, he's talking about Jewish legalism that followed Paul wherever he went. Touch not, taste not, that's not kosher, so on. But they went far beyond what Moses did. They did to Jesus, too, you remember, in the gospel accounts. They tried to, uh, to uh, construe the Sabbath laws as keeping us from doing good. They could help 
an ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath, if it was their ox, but they couldn't heal. That was work. Can you imagine? That's the way it was perverted. A Talmudic tradition that had begun to supplant what God had said. God's word says, and Jesus said, look, God's word, the Ten Commandments tells you honor your father and mother, and you set aside God's commandment by your tradition that says, well, if I call this korban, it's devoted to God, I have the use of it as long as I don't sell it, but only I can use it, and when I die, it belongs to God, so I can't help my parents. Jesus said, you set aside the commandments of God for your own tradition. This is what many of them had done. And those who opposed the gospel in Jesus' day, those who opposed the gospel in Paul's day, and they followed Paul around, and they were here on Crete. Paul says they must be silenced. By the way, we should distinguish between covenant continuity and Jewish legalism. We really should. Covenant continuity simply recognizes that God has a plan for his people. He's chosen a people, and that people comes through ultimately the seed of Abraham and then embraces the believing Gentiles at the time that Christ comes and fulfills the types and shadows of the details of the Mosaic law, ceremonial law, is fulfilled in Christ and not incumbent upon new believers from among the Gentiles. There's a continuity of God's people. Then Paul can say, if you're Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. What promise? The covenant promise that God gave to Abraham. In Genesis 12.3 and in Genesis chapter 15 and in Genesis chapter 17. The re-giving, if you will, reaffirmation or renewals of the one covenant. It's interesting, by the way. The reference to uh, a relationship between God and man in the Bible. The one term used more than any other, especially in the Old Testament, is covenant. And God gives it, and he gives it, and he gives it, and he gives it to Abraham, to, he gives it to Abraham, to Isaac, he gives it to Jacob, he gives it to Moses, but he never serializes it and says, uh, this is uh, covenant A, and this is covenant B, and now you're under covenant C. He doesn't do that. It's one covenant. It's always in the singular in the Old Testament. Always. And it's referred to as my covenant. In the Psalms we're told, my covenant which I gave to or cut with, literally, Abraham that I confirmed with Isaac and I established it with Jacob to be an everlasting covenant. One covenant. Each time he's given it, he's given the same covenant. He's unfolding it. You're in it now, Paul says, if you're a believer today. There's a continuity. We're freed from all the types and shadows and things that, that pointed to Christ and prefigured him. And we never should have been under all those Talmudic trappings that were added by other erstwhile Judaizers of Paul's day. And it's true now. There was also here in Crete an incipient Gnosticism, scholars say, um, that was combined with Talmudic speculation to produce both asceticism and its opposite, hedonism. Uh, Gnosticism basically says, and it, it has its, its origins in the Aryan 
uh, movement into North India, across Persia, and into uh, a northern part of Greece long before. I uh, teach world religions and uh, Christian encounter with him, and that would be another uh, lecture, and this is not that. But, but let me just say that at its root, what it says is this. It says, this world, anything material, your body, what you see around you is maya. That's a Sanskrit term. It's illusion. It's evil. Because real God is just spirit. And if real God is just spirit, and these are just, just window dressings, trappings that we need to be free of, when you bury, what do you do? You get rid of the corpse, you free it. So they burned. I don't mean it's wrong for us to cremate, but it's wrong for us to cremate for that reason. Got to get rid of the body. No, for the Christian, the body's still united to Christ no matter what happens to it. But then, you see, the ideas have consequences. So if this body doesn't really matter and it's evil anyway, I deny it everything and I get into extreme asceticism. I, I won't get married like the Essenes. They were extremely ascetic. Um, I won't, uh, I won't touch all kinds of things. I'll only be a, a vegan. I'll, uh, I'll uh, even more than that, you know, I, I don't eat. I, I try to, try to uh, emaciate myself. Uh, and one form of that taught by um, Mahavira among the early Jains. Uh, he was the founder of that reform movement in Hinduism long ago, about, about six, 550 B.C. And, and that basically said, starve yourself to death. That's a real holy way to go. Oh, my goodness. On the other side, there were people who said, oh, if the body doesn't matter, I can do anything I want. Let me live in dissipation. So what? I know it's just an illusion. Neither of those are biblical ideas, worldviews, of consequences. God made me. He made the world. He made it good. Sin has struck it, defaced it, but it's still God's. And it's still good. And so Paul says to the pure, all things are pure. Jesus said, it's not, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of him out of his mouth, out of his heart. You see, that's the point to which Paul is getting. Well, if that's the contamination, that's the problem, that's what false leaders are and do, what's the corrective? Corrective is true leaders. Church leaders' ministry must begin with their own families. Verse 6, and we'll read it. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Um, it's interesting that, um, that elders is used in the plural in, uh, in verse 6. And in verse 5, um, or rather it's used in the plural in verse 5, and uh, says elders in every city. Some would say, okay, well, there are lots of churches in each city, local church fellowships, house churches, and each of them has one elder. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. Because in Acts chapter, 20, chapter 13, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas are going back 
to the cities that they've just been through uh, that have been Pisidian Antioch, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and now they're going back through them again. And what do they do? They appoint elders, plural, in each church, singular. I'm biased here, but I do believe there's an incipient Presbyterianism in terms of form of government uh, that every church is governed, overseen by a plurality of elders, more than one. And, and, there's not a distinction between them. How can you say that, Dr. Lars? Well, only because I believe it's taught in Scripture. In chapter, for example, here, overseer, bishop, that's what it's often translated, and elder, presbyter, are used interchangeably in 1 Peter chapter 5. Elder, bishop, and pastor are all three used interchangeably. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul speaks to the elders gathered from Ephesus, and he meets them in Miletus along the coast, he speaks to them and he uses the term elders, pastor, and bishop or overseer interchangeably. We don't have degrees of offices. There's not a hierarchy or a prelacy in Scripture. There's an equality. What's described by each of those is a slightly different aspect of the same function. An overseer is one who looks, watches over, watches over. A pastor is a shepherd, one who nurtures along, but also protects. And an elder is one who lives out an example and by instruction can lead the church. And there are three different aspects of one office. Marriage and children of our elders must adorn the name of Christ. And by the way, it should be true of all our families. Verse 6, the husband of but one wife, a one-woman man, and whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And in, in uh, his epistle to uh, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 3, uh, we read these words, just taking a part of it, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to, fa- how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So we do need to have people who are our leaders who are managing their households well. Well, what if someone's having trouble with one of their children? Well, how are they handling it? We shouldn't expect that Satan's not going to attack our leaders' families any differently than they attack our own. How are they handling it? How are they responding to it? Biblically? Do we see God's Spirit working in that child's life? What if the child has grown? Oh, well, uh, what if the person came to Christ and, uh, and um, late in, later in life and has been a believer for 10 or more years, but their children were already grown and gone? We could tease out all of these different what-ifs. But the bottom line is, if you have children at home for whom you're responsible, God holds you accountable for how you lead them and how you mold them. And that should be an example, not just to the rest of the church, but to the community that doesn't understand it and may not even value it. 
Our own lives must reflect Christ-like character in, in relationships, and so should our elders, especially verses 7 and 8. We read, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, that word again, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Work salvation? No, it isn't. It's Christ-likeness growing in our lives. Not perfection, blameless. Never forget that. And then you have uh, his words to, to Timothy again in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but now looking at verses 2 and 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, or teachable, they're both aspects, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. See, our own lives need to reflect Christ-like character and relationship. And finally, our leaders and we ourselves must be well-grounded in God's word in order to encourage and correct others. And that is what Paul says in verse 9. He says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. How's it been taught? Apostolic preaching of the cross. Where do we have it today? In our New Testament, in the scriptures. Trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. True teaching of the word of God is encouraging. And it does correct. And we need it. In, um, in Paul's day, I want you to understand, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, it's not like there were no Jewish believers before Pentecost. Of course there were. What was John the Baptist? Was he not a believer? How about Joseph, the adopted uh, the father, who, the man who adopted Jesus, if you will? Was he not a good man? He's dikaios. He's just before God. Righteous. Not perfect. A blameless man. How about his mother Mary? How about others? The parents of John the Baptist, very devout, Zechariah and Elizabeth. No, they were believers. Don't think they weren't. Don't think they weren't part of the covenant community, the family of God into which we as Gentiles have been engrafted as wild branches by the grace of God. They were the natural ones, if you will. Go back far enough and nobody's natural. When God called Abram, he was a Mesopotamian Gentile pagan. <laughs> he was. Read the account. God called him, and through him comes this olive tree, as it were. Ultimately, it's the tree of Christ, into whom we belong. And so what happens is Paul comes back through. You say, well, that was rather quick if Paul, in a matter of, uh, of months, 
really, on his first missionary trip, comes back through and ordains elders in every church. But elsewhere, he says, uh, don't lay hands on anyone suddenly and make sure that they're not a new convert. Isn't that a contradiction? No, not at all. Now, many of these people were mature believers who were waiting for Messiah, and when they heard of the Messiah, they embraced him, and they understood, like Apollos did, the scriptures and the light of the gospel of Christ who has come and they were ready as leaders. They already were leaders. And now they were leaders who were completed Messianic Jews. So we need in our churches today those that God has set apart who have the gifts of teaching, gifts of shepherding, gifts of overseeing, gifts of being an example who live out lives of Christ-likeness to adorn his name. And brothers and sisters, that lifestyle is one we're all called to. Let's pray.